0: It's particularly fitting in this beginning of Passion Week, also the start of spring. For many here, it's the beginning of spring break for the kids. Welcome to this gathering of God's people. I was going to introduce myself. A few of you might not know me. My name is Josh. For those of you who remember me, I used to preach here more, but kind of due to some travel um, around my sabbatical, also, it's been quite a while since I've, I've preached, and I've counted it a privilege to have this opportunity to bring the word to us today. Um, and I want to take this opportunity, too, just to briefly but sincerely thank the church and thank the, the other pastors for allowing me to take the months of December to February off from formal pastoral ministry. And during that time, God had Lorraine and I crying out to him regularly, um But we really grew to miss opportunities to preach well me to preach and and to lead worship um, during that time but it was it was a real blessing to be able to have focus time to um, be together as a family to focus on the homecoming of our new daughter and the transition that it 's been for all of us so we appreciate the prayers, the meals, the encouragement and generosity of all of you you 've been You have been and are a blessing to me and to our family. So thank you. Please turn now in your Bibles to John chapter 19. And if you don't already have a Bible in your hands, on your lap, or sitting next to you, I I encourage you to grab a copy from the table right over here by the doors uh, you came in. We'll mostly be in John 19 today, although there are a few um, Old Testament texts that John references, and I'll be reading those, but I think we can pretty much camp out On this text. Last week we studied the first part of John 19 and the crucifixion of Christ. In this, his sacrificial work, carrying his cross to suffer for and bear our sins, I think we came face to face with our own call to follow Christ down the path of suffering, bearing our own crosses in his name. Because only in his death are we freed to live in that kind of a sin abhorring, Jesus worshiping, countercultural way. And today we finish the account from the cross with John's own eyewitness testimony of what happened after Jesus died. After the text says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The biblical author is very intentional in today's text about. What happened to Jesus' body? And if we look from a purely human standpoint, it might seem like the entire passage as we read it is really the account of Jesus' body from the cross to the tomb. John includes in this prophetic accounts, intricate details of what happened, and he tells the story of new disciples stepping forward into the light. What benefit is there to spend time on what happened to the body of Jesus. As we read from John chapter 19, starting in verse 30 to the end of this chapter, I encourage you to pay attention to a couple things. First of all, I'd like you to look for what two responses are there to Jesus' death. Also, I encourage you to notice what evidence John highlights to prove that Christ truly died. Let's read together John 19, 30 through 42. This is the word of God. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a holy day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would supernaturally enable and empower this preaching of your holy word. I feel that I have put in what human effort I could to study this text, to understand the meaning, to try and figure out a way to communicate it best to your people. But apart from your working, this is just going to be a man talking and people listening. And we sincerely want it to be more than that. We want it to be the supernatural work of God through His Word to His people. We pray that the Spirit would work to illumine, to open our eyes to the the wonders and the glory of Jesus Christ in this text. Show us Jesus. Give us an understanding that changes our lives, what it means that He died and was buried. I pray that we would maybe even understand to a fuller degree that this burial of Christ was not a transitional truth, but it's actually a critical part of the doctrine of the atonement and of how we are justified and how our sins were paid for. I pray that you would give those who are yet apart from you eyes to hear, eyes to see, and ears to hear your word today. That you would give them faith and repentance. I pray that you would break through any hardness that we have, Lord, toward the hearing of your word. Break through any distractions that could come. Other things on our mind about the coming week or even later this evening. I pray for those in our body, Lord, who are sick and unable to be here, are traveling, I pray that you would meet with them today as well. In your word, that you would draw our hearts as a church to you in worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1973, William Goldman, an author, wrote a fantasy novel based on some stories that he would tell his young daughters. I can relate to this as someone who reads a lot of books to my girls and sometimes don't have a book right there, so I'm encouraged to make up a story. And I don't think I made up one as well as he did, but one of his two daughters wanted a story about princesses, and the other one wanted one about brides. You can probably see where this is going. You might not be as familiar with the book, but you've probably heard of or seen the movie A Princess Bride, which was an adaptation of Goldman's book that came out in the late 80s. In this movie, The Princess Bride became a bit of a cult classic, capturing in a sweeping adventure and comedic love story the imaginations of many. And there was one memorable part in the story where the protagonist, Westley, has just been put to death by the villain using this machine that sucks the life out of him. It's kind of a, a moving scene as he dies. And Inigo Montoya the one who's seeking to avenge his father's death, brings him to a man called Miracle Max, a bit of a magician, miracle worker. And in this scene, Miracle Max is relieved to see that Wesley is only mostly dead, in his words, as opposed to all dead. And he points out there's a big difference between only mostly dead and all dead. And he proceeds to stick a bellows in his mouth and pumps air into his lungs to see what he has left to live for. And then he pushes on his chest and and Wesley kind of gasps out the words, true love, to which Miracle Max puts together a pill to revive this mostly dead hero. Now that story is clearly fiction put together as entertainment. But let's start by establishing the fact that this was not the case of Jesus. Jesus was not only mostly dead after the crucifixion and just needed some special potion or elixir to revive him. John is not going to let us read his book, his account of the crucifixion with that kind of a misconception. No, Christ is completely dead when he comes down from the cross in John 19. And there's nothing that could be more glorious than For the sinner in need of a Savior. Nothing could be more glorious than the truth that Jesus actually was dead. And I hope by the end of this message you understand why. And if you don't, please come and talk to me or come and talk to someone else about why that truth is so great. The setting of today's text is established right at the beginning in verse 31, and then again at the end in verse 42. So we bracket the events of the text with. This statement that is happening during the Jewish day of preparation. And this seems to most likely refer to the day before the Sabbath when a faithful Jewish person would have started to prepare himself or herself physically and spiritually for the upcoming day. Now John includes a parenthetical in verse 31 that says that this particular Sabbath was a high day. It was a great day. And this probably refers to the fact that it fell during the Passover week. So it was a particularly significant Sabbath day. And there's a few possible reasons that John actually takes the time to draw attention to this. One of them is simply to motivate the request of the Jews that's about to follow. But it also impacts the timing of the burial, location where Jesus is buried. So there's some practical reasons here, I believe, that John wants us to see and know that this burial was actually done and some degree of haste because of the day of preparation. And I think John is drawing some theological connections too and pointing out when this happened, reminding us of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. We're going to sing it after the message, but the, the hymn, Rock of Ages Cleft for Me, as the first stanza goes like this, Rock of Ages Cleft for Me, Let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Augustus Toplady, a British pastor and hymn writer of the mid seventeen hundreds, penned these words that are known and sung by so many. And as we study today's text, let's worship Jesus as we draw near to his pure side as we see him laid in the tomb awaiting that resurrection morn. And we're going to cover two main points today and several subpoints under each that will establish both the certainty and the significance of Jesus' death. So if you have an outline, I encourage you even to jot down a few of these subpoints. I didn't put them all in there. But under the first main point, we have Jesus' death is certain. The first reason why is because the soldiers knew it the soldiers knew that Jesus' death was certain. Because rather than break the legs of Jesus to speed up his death, when the soldiers come to him, they recognize he's already dead. By passing the body and not breaking the legs, I believe they're doing the equivalent of modern medical technicians recording the time of death. First, a bit of background on what's going on, though, with this leg breaking. Roman crucifixions weren't officially over, until the condemned were fully dead. A crucifixion wasn't just um, a torture device, although it was that, but it was a, a mode of execution. So until the condemned was fully dead, they would not take the person off the cross. This could take days in some situations. Days of the crucified pushing themselves up with their leg and arm strength, whatever they could summon, taking a gasping breath, and then falling back down. And as a result, historians tell us that victims were often simply left there on the cross to be eaten by vultures and to decay. But to the Jewish religious community, we see in verse 31, this was too long to wait. So they make the request of Pilate for this particular crucifixion that the deaths be sped up by breaking the legs of the three men hanging there so that they can be taken down off the cross. With only the arms left to support one's body weight, death through asphyxiation would come relatively fast for the crucified. This practice of breaking the legs actually has a name in Latin, curafragium. It only got used when there was some reason to hurry up the process. They took out an iron mallet and took it to the lower legs. And there's independent archaeological evidence of finding some crucifixion victims one particular case I read about, a first century crucifixion victim had one leg broken and the other one was shattered into many pieces. Now, why did the Jewish authorities ask this request on this particular day? Well, I already mentioned the next day was the high Sabbath and they didn't want to risk the land becoming defiled by the curse of the crucified. In Deuteronomy 21 There's actually part of the Mosaic law that says if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So leaving the victims of crucifixion. The cursed victims of crucifixion up on the cross overnight would curse and defile the land. This would be bad for religious business on a high Sabbath. I suspect there was probably also some self-protection going on here by the Jewish leaders, trying to hide the fact that they had crucified this man under false pretenses, so wanting to get it over with and have him buried as quickly as possible. They continue to step deeper Into the darkness created by their sin So the first point of certainty Regarding Christ's death is that these hardened soldiers Accustomed to identifying the dead from the living They saw and knew that Jesus was dead But the second is the spear The spear confirmed his death Having just broken the legs of the other two On either side of Christ One soldier decides to make use Of the weapon at his side to confirm that Jesus was really dead. This didn't appear to be a standard part of crucifixion practice, but in this instance, one soldier took his short spear, about three and a half feet long, all the soldiers would carry one in Roman, um, in that time of Rome, and thrust it deep into Jesus' side. The same wound is later mentioned in John's Gospel as the place where Thomas is going to place his hand. And become convinced that it is Jesus himself before him. And we're told that resulting from this new wound, blood and water flow out. This would have certainly been a fatal wound if Jesus had not already been dead. And the spear left a hole large enough for a hand, probably having pierced the membrane around the heart, the pericardium. At this point, Jesus' death is doubly certain. And then we have in our account today something else. So we have the the soldiers, we have the spear, but we also have the apostle who witnessed the death. John wants us to know that he's not going off secondhand testimony. He interjects into the telling of the narrative with his own validation of the truthfulness of these events being described. It's as if he's saying, do you doubt that there was really blood and water flowing out of Jesus' side? I was there, I saw it, and I know what I saw, and I'm speaking in complete truthfulness. He says his testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. And even talking about himself in the third person seems to be some form of narrative attestation. He's attesting to the truth of what's being reported. His goal is but that we, the readers, may believe. He said that. He who saw it has borne witness that you also may believe. He tells us in excruciating detail exactly what he saw of the blood and the water, of the new piercing in the side of his Savior, and how, with certainty, he knows that Jesus was dead. Next, we see the scriptures themselves predicting the death of Christ. John gives us one more reason for sharing all this detail. He says he did it because the events themselves happened in order to fulfill prophecy from the Old Testament. And then he highlights the two passages that are being fulfilled. In verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Let's look at each of the passages separately. The first one he mentions, not one of his bones will be broken. While this doesn't seem to be a direct quotation of any specific single Hebrew text, there are two places in the Old Testament that explain this principle. One is found in Psalm chapter 34. I'll read verses 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones Not one of them is broken. The psalmist is referring to this prototypical righteous man, the one who is delivered in God's sovereignty from having a single bone broken, even when under the affliction of the unrighteous. And while the title of righteous certainly and fully applies to Jesus, I don't think this passage is literally saying that every person pursuing righteousness will escape their bones being broken. But it is pointing out that the righteous is under God's sovereign care and protection, even to the point of keeping his bones from being broken. I think there's, though, another place in the Old Testament that's probably more intended by John. And it comes up both in Exodus and Numbers, in the description of the Passover lamb. Exodus chapter 12. I won't read the entire account of the Passover lamb and and how God says the lamb is to be prepared and killed and the blood, how it's to be spread on the doorpost. But actually later in the description, when Moses is sharing exactly what is to be done, in verse 46 of Exodus 12, we read, It shall be eaten... This is speaking of the lamb in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Again, in Numbers 9, when God is reminding his people, now having come out of Egypt on the anniversary of the Passover, he repeats again, They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones, according to all the statute for the Passover. They shall keep it. So, part of the perfection, part of the unblemished nature of the sacrificial lamb of Passover was that it could have no broken bones. And John's testimony highlights that Jesus, on the night of his death, fulfills the criteria of the lamb. Remember, this is at the very time the nation is celebrating the Passover. Let that truth sink into our hearts and draw us to worship. Christ truly was the Passover lamb to the fullest degree, even to where his bones were not broken. We read then John refers to one other Old Testament text when he says in verse 37, and again another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is pointing back to the priest and the prophet Zechariah who prophesied to Judah of a future time of great mourning due to Yahweh having been pierced. I'll read verse 10 of Zechariah 12. And I, Yahweh, will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, On him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. Zechariah in his book has been pointing to one worthy shepherd who would come to rescue his people. They had had lots of unworthy shepherds, people who had led them into idolatry and sin. But Zechariah is pointing them to the one shepherd that would rescue his people. And I believe he's referring to that shepherd now as the one being pierced, as the representative of Yahweh. Now John, having already told us that Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd, is connecting those dots for us. And he's pointing out that Jesus being pierced was fulfilling this responsibility of the good shepherd. So not only was he the Passover lamb on the cross, but he was also the good shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. And the result of this piercing would be a spirit of grace and mercy would result in mourning in the land. But I love how Zechariah starts the next chapter, Zechariah 13. So he's just talked about the shepherd being pierced. But in Zechariah 13:1 he says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And while many draw symbolism from the blood and the water that flow from Jesus' side, I think it's probably more accurate to simply point to this text. And while it's not a point I'm willing to be dogmatic about, it's worth connecting this cleansing fountain that Zechariah talks about, this fountain that would cleanse the people from their sin and uncleanness, to connecting that to the blood and the water that flow from Jesus' side. The piercing of Jesus spilled the blood and water that accomplishes cleansing once and all. For God's people. So we have the soldiers that knew he was dead. We have the spear that confirmed he was dead. We have John who attests the fact that he was dead. We have Scripture that had prophesied he would die. We also have the disciples that knew it that Christ was dead. Two disciples come out of hiding after the death of Jesus one named Joseph of Arimathea. The the passage here says he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. In fact, all the synoptic Gospels as well bring up Joseph as stepping forward boldly to claim the body of Christ to be buried. And the other had already been introduced to us as Nicodemus. It says here he had earlier come to Jesus by night. We studied that in John 3. He came to ask Jesus what it meant to be born again. Both Joseph and Nicodemus have a religious pedigree. They were prominent members of the Sanhedrin Council. And they were likely wealthy based on what they gave the Savior. Their history of following Christ was marked by fear. was marked by lurking in the shadows. But on this afternoon of Jesus' death, they step forward as followers of Christ. We don't know what role they may have played in the crucifixion itself. Scripture doesn't tell us. But here it does point out their acts of courage as they identify with the Savior and step forward into the light. And I see here a contrast between what the Jews at the beginning of the passage ask for, that the legs be broken, the bodies taken down, They'd like to hide their act in darkness. And I see Nicodemus and Joseph here stepping forward into the light and saying, we may suffer, we may die for identifying with Christ, the condemned, but so be it. So you might ask, how does this confirm his death? How does the disciples stepping forward confirm the death of Christ? I wonder, though, would they do this? Would they risk their lives as followers of the condemned Christ if they thought that he might still be alive? Would they have spent the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars on burial spices? Someone approximated that myrrh mixed with aloe of that weight, of around 75 pounds weight, would probably run somewhere between 150 and $200,000 in today's prices. This was not some inexpensive way to bury someone. But would they have spent that money on someone not really dead? I think these senior leaders knew that Jesus was dead and boldly stepped forward, not to clear their names, but to identify as followers of Jesus and to honor him with a proper burial. And as a convicted criminal, what normally would have happened is Jesus would have been taken off the cross to a special criminal burial plot outside of the city. He would have been placed by the Romans in an unmarked grave and left there. Instead, he was buried. It says nearby. He was buried in some haste due to the coming sunset, which marked the beginning of Sabbath. And the text again here mentions the timing of the day of preparation and the nearness of Joseph's new tomb. These two men together work to take the body of Christ wrap it in clean linen with a blend of aloe and myrrh and lay him in a tomb that same afternoon but in God's providence that puts Jesus near the city it also allows there to be additional burial procedures that need to take place that the women are going to come to do the morning after the Sabbath, to finish the proper Jewish burial. But we'll cover that in next week's part of the account. But you see how it's even God's orchestrating this to set up the resurrection itself. So we've seen that Jesus' death is certain. I think John, that's one of the main reasons he goes through all of this detail. But I want to now spend some time on the second point Because Jesus' death is also significant. If you were asked the question, what is the significance of Jesus' death? How would you answer that? I think most of us would affirm, would agree that it is important. But do we know why? As I've studied and prayed this week about what would be helpful for us to reflect on, what applications may come out of this text. I was reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians about the gospel that he preached. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And notice what he lists as critical for the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul goes on then to describe who actually saw him after his resurrection. You notice there, The burial of Christ is listed along with his death and his resurrection as a significant gospel event in its own right. It is part of the good news that Paul preached that Christ was buried. Why is that? What makes his death and the certainty of his death significant? Well, the first reason, I believe, is that it makes his humanity undeniable. Because God cannot die. So to any who either would doubt or deny the humanity of Jesus, this passage in John is very difficult to get past, unless you just pretend it doesn't exist. Because John goes out of his way here to emphasize Jesus truly died. Actually, much of John echoes this truth. Remember, even back in the prologue, that in the incarnation of Jesus, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us in John 1, verse 14. And here in today's passage, we've already talked about how extensively he confirms and reconfirms the death of Christ. In in application to even this point about Christ's humanity, you may not come today doubting that Jesus was actually the God-man who lived, breathed, ate, drank, became hungry, got tired. But at the same time, there might be some struggle to accept the fullness of Jesus' humanity. To believe that according to Hebrews, that he was like us in every respect, but without sin. In that, I think we have to believe that he experienced the full range of human emotion, of grief and sorrow, of joy and anger, Therefore, we must not conclude that he does not understand our feelings. We also would have to conclude that he was, in fact, tempted like us, but without ever sinning. Therefore, he is the one that is able to help us in our time of temptation. We have to conclude that he, in fact, suffered, both as a man and also in ways that we will never suffer as an eternal member of the Godhead separated from the Father when he took on our sins. Now in these practical recognitions of God become man, Jesus Christ, may we be encouraged that in being fully human, having a human body, having a human mind, a human will, human emotions, that his salvation for us is full as well. In the words of one of the early church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. So he became a man in full so that he can save us in full. There's not any part of our humanity that he did not experience outside of our sin. Hallelujah. What a Savior. May that encourage us even as we pray to God, as we pray to the Godhead. May remember that Christ endured much of what we endure. He struggled. He had emotions. He had needs, human needs. May that help us to be authentic about our own struggles with Him. Second, significant point i think we can make about jesus death is the fact that he died makes his atonement actual there are two aspects of jesus atonement that this text brings out the unbroken legs and the pierced side both attest to the atonement of christ when we looked earlier at the prophecies that were fulfilled they drew our attention to the passover lamb this lamb needed to be unblemished having no bones broken. And the piercing of Christ's side highlights the blood that he spilled in the place of sinners. Now if Jesus had not died, atonement would not have been accomplished for even one sin. The sinless Son of God would have gone on living his perfect life. And he would still, and we would still, bear the penalty for our sins. The cross of Jesus only accomplishes atonement if the sacrificial son bears the wrath all the way to his death. And the second chapter of Hebrews that was read early in the service is particularly helpful here. Hebrews 2 verse 9 Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was in actually tasting death on our behalf that his glorious atoning work was accomplished. Have you ever wondered whether God, instead of the gospel plan being carried out the way it was, have you ever wondered whether God could have simply issued something like a presidential pardon and let both us and Jesus Off the hook to pay for man's sin. Have you ever wondered if that, you know, why couldn't God have just issued an edict and pardoned sin? And unfortunately, though, this line of thinking presupposes that God's wrath against sin is something that he wills so that he can also will himself not to be angry about sin. But this really isn't how anger works. It's not how anger works for God, but it's not even true how anger works for us. Because when we see something evil, something unjust in the world, we react with anger, not because we decide to, but because evil outrages our very nature, especially when we see it done against the innocent or the helpless. We're outraged by it. And in this, we reflect God's image, because sin appalls not in his will, but in who he is in his very nature. Sin appalls God. And because anger is there, it must be appeased. Donald MacLeod, a Scottish scholar, on the doctrine of the atonement wrote this. A reconciliation in which God is still angry with us is a contradiction in terms. And a divine forgiveness which condones sin would un-God, God himself. This is why Christ, as the head of his body, the church, had to die. Not only to satisfy the wrath of God, but to satisfy God himself that it is his right to forgive sin. By his obedience, Christ expiated our sins. And by expiating sin, he propitiated God. This great doctrine of justification, that we are made righteous, rests firmly on the atonement. So we are justified through blood, through Jesus' blood. And the atonement rests on the incarnation that he had to become man in order to die and die in our place he did. from Isaiah 53 he was pierced for our transgressions. So the atonement is actualized in Jesus dying. Third points of significance of his death is that it makes his resurrection possible. Without the certain death and burial of Jesus, there could be no resurrection. Now maybe this seems a little bit too Captain Obvious to mention, but I believe it's worth our attention that without death, there can be no resurrection from the dead. Because if Jesus had somehow stayed alive through the crucifixion, as some who argue that he only swooned when he was on the cross might claim. If then in turn he was buried alive, then the entire resurrection becomes an elaborate fraud. If he had been, as in the princess bride, only mostly dead, it would not qualify his resurrection as a genuine and a decisive victory over death. The actual historical death and burial of Jesus with eyewitnesses to corroborate the facts, becomes a necessary preface to being raised from the dead. Brother and sister, raised Jesus was. If you join us next week, we'll be studying together chapter 20 and John's detailed account of the post-resurrection meetings with Jesus. Now a saving knowledge of Jesus crucified and risen is not the result of right reasoning about some historical facts. We don't become saved by weighing the evidence and saying, yes, it seems like it most likely happened that way. Now, this may be part of the path to salvation, but ultimately spiritual illumination needs to take place. To take these facts for what they truly are, a revelation of the truth and glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Use the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. And this brings us to the final subpoint of the, the significance of Jesus' death for us today is that it makes our own deaths glorious. The death of Christ makes our deaths glorious. According to studies and surveys, now, it's hard to cite study, studies on this kind of thing, but the fear of death is usually at the top of the list of things people fear the most. Now, some studies have come out in the last 10 or 15 years that say the fear of public speaking is actually slightly higher than the fear of death, but maybe they're afraid they're going to die when they're up there, so it probably factors in somewhere. But these studies also indicate that just having religion alone doesn't actually lessen the fear of death for the people being surveyed. The fact that they're religious doesn't make them fear death any less. So why do we fear death? One reason, and probably the most likely one, is that death is largely an unknown. Only one has died and come back to tell about it. Of course, there have been, in recent years especially, a kind of explosion of people who claim to have died and seen things and came back and made books and movies about it and made lots of money. While I'm not here particularly to talk about those type of accounts, we still fear death. We still fear the mystery of what's on the other side of the curtain. And even to a Christian, there's much we don't know about what we will face after death. Also, I think another reason that we fear death so much As humans, thinking about death forces us to think of all the things in life that we'll miss. All the things in this world. We fear the people that we'll lose or the people that will be left behind without us to take care of them. We fear the loss of things that we have in this life. Experiences that we may be looking forward to and will never have. So in a sense, we fear losing everything we know and then facing an unknown. What can we do with these fears? What can we do with the fear of death? Obviously, in what's left in the message, I can't fully elaborate on this, but based on the truth of Jesus' own death, for starters, we know that we don't enter the gates of death alone, but our Savior has already walked that road before us. This could sound at first maybe like a therapeutic platitude. But believe me, that's not my intent because platitudes might make you feel better today or for a few days. But when faced with death of yourself, with a loved one, you need something more. You need something secure to hold on to. And that latter part of Hebrews 2 that was read earlier is, per, is powerfully applicable to our souls on this point of something to hold on to. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, the author of Hebrews writes, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So it's saying Christ also, in flesh and blood, partook of the same things as us, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So one thing he's going to do is he's going to destroy the one who has the power of death. Often we attribute the destruction of the power of death to the resurrection. But if you look through the New Testament, it actually spends just as much time talking about Christ's death as being that which conquered death. The fact that Christ himself experienced death was the decisive blow the nail in the coffin to mix death metaphors for death and the devil so first of all it destroyed the power of death but second in hebrews 2 and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery what the author of hebrews is saying is that death And the fear of death holds captives for their entire lives. But Jesus, when he died, he did so to deliver us from that fear of death. Through his death, Jesus both destroyed and he delivered. He destroyed Satan, the one who wields death as a weapon, and also delivered those who were chained down by their fear of death. Since he has redeemed death for us, the death of a Christian can be glorious because it echoes the victory that he already won over death. And as we close today's message with this truth, I pray, seeing and studying the death of Christ, and maybe if you're in community group this week, talking about it with your community group, finding other passages that point to the death of Christ But also, I believe John in the last book of the Bible also has something else to say about Christ's authority over death. We'll get there in a minute. But Richard Baxter wrote this hymn text about 350 years ago. He was a Puritan church leader and hymn writer. Not a hymn we sing, so I'll read it slowly. encourage you to think, let it sink in. Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. And he that in God's kingdom comes must enter by this door. Come, Lord, when grace hath made me meet thy blessed face to see. For if thy work on earth be sweet, what must thy glory be? Christ leads us through no darker rooms than he went through before. May dwelling on the death of Christ give us increased confidence in the truth of His actual death, but also confidence and courage to face our own death. Yes, death is the terrible result of sin and its curse. But it's not the final end for the Christian. Christ has gone before us and now holds the keys to death. Keys in Scripture are always a reference to authority over something. And John encountered this beautiful truth in his vision of Jesus during his exile on the island of Patmos. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. He said, When I saw him, Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. In Jesus' death, brothers and sisters, we too can face death. May this be the meditation of our hearts, this Passion Week, that we find assurance in Christ's death. Father, pray that you would take your word and apply it where each person needs it today if there's some who are rightly fearing death because they do not find their safety and their security in a crucified Savior, I pray that they would fall on Your mercy today. I pray that they would find a trusted brother or sister to talk with and pray with. and that death no more would hold that kind of power over them. And for the many in here, Lord, who already follow You, who already trust in the finished work of Christ for their salvation, but still struggle with the fear of death or still struggle with seeing Jesus as fully human, therefore understanding their struggle. Or who may even just lack confidence that what we just studied today is really true. Pray that you would renew our faith today. That you would scatter doubt that the deceiver may be putting in minds and hearts. And remind us that Jesus himself, in dying for us, both atoned for our sins, but also conquered death decisively. And now holds the very keys, the authority of death. Pray that you'd encourage us by these truths today.